0: Number 179, we've been asked to mark that song, certainly happy to do that, and we'll use that later in our service this evening. It's certainly a blessing, isn't it, to be able to come together. We just sang about King Jesus, and in many ways, that's one of the powerful presentations, really, in the book of Revelation. It's so good that we each have been blessed with the opportunity to be here, and hopefully tonight, not only the singing and the praying, but the consideration of the Word of God will be a blessed benefit to each of us. Would you be turning to the book of Revelation? We began a series of lessons a few Sundays ago now at this point, but it was our task to at least move our way through that 66th and final book of the Bible, doing so in such a way that we might appreciate not only some of the grand lessons of that book, but use it in a timely way to encourage us in our Christian walk of life day by day. On the slide before you, you can appreciate, at least in a brief way, some of that which we noted on that introductory lesson really for this book. But remember that the book of Revelation fits so naturally and so systematically into the overall scheme of the New Testament. The gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John share with us the grandest of all lives ever lived, perfect in every way, sinless absolutely. And yet they put Him to death, nailed Him to a cross, and He died, of course, shedding precious blood for the benefit of the human family. But thankfully, the grave couldn't hold him. Up from the grave, he arose, and in thus the next book, the book of Acts, we learn about the church that he established, the blessed church of our Lord that was begun on that first day of Pentecost and that continues today. Isn't it a blessed thing to notice those conversion accounts that tell us how to become Christians in that book? But then we learn from 26, 21 books following about living the Christian life. Romans through Jude specify for us how to live each day faithful in the church, committed to the Lord. That leaves but one book, and that's the Revelation. How do we we die in Christ? How do we go home to glory? How do we close the affairs of our allotted time here and proceed to that better walk of life hereafter? In many ways, that's the theme of the Revelation. Surely, the key word, as we've noticed before, is the word overcome. If we'll overcome sin and Satan and self, we can come over to live with Him. And that's what this book shares with us in such vivid imagery. You may notice at the bottom of this book, this book, perhaps higher than all of those otherwise in the New Testament, is a visually oriented book. John, what you see, write it in a book. The very words of Revelation 1 verse 11. John thus in many ways was in the audience watching that which took place and he was to write down what he saw. May I suggest to you that that's the approach I have chosen to take tonight to basically make this lesson a more visually oriented one. And so I must admit admit that in that way the notes will be less for copying. It'll be things that you and I will, will see. We shall begin like this. What I'm going to do, at least for the next few moments tonight, is attempt to step through the 22 chapters of Revelation very briefly. And our goal is to appreciate it like this. Quite often, rather than giving great attention to the trees, what is the forest? What does it look like? And as you and I, then, beginning next week, we'll turn back and give more details to some of the features we'll study tonight more briefly. It all begins in chapter 1. In that chapter, we have an introduction, a prologue, if you will, to the book in which we see somewhat about the nature of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as they are revealed to us in verses 4 through 8, we learn that they're eternal, absolutely eternal, which are, which was, and which is to come. And following that, we see the spotlight then, not merely left on the three, but really cast upon the Christ. For after all, He is the one, you see, that has the keys of death and of hell. It is He that has the keys, you see, of that which will usher in the great realm beyond. He is the one that walks in the midst of His churches. And with that, chapter number 2 opens, and we see the first of seven churches of Asia that are listed. And on that map before you, I realize the print's a bit small, but you can perhaps highlight these churches beginning over here at the right. As you step upward, there is one by one Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In many ways, they form a triangle if you actually draw it on a map. that's a rather convenient way of remembering them as you move from the lower left up the diagonal of a triangle and back down the right. But these seven churches of Asia, they were commended by the Lord for those things which needed commendation. Some of them were urged in light of the matter that they had identified false prophets, false teachers, if you will, and had not given in to their teaching. There were other times, though, when the Lord rebuked them because they had tolerated what ought not to have been tolerated. They had sinned in the camp, to borrow the words of Joshua. And we also notice that on occasion, He motivated them for work yet to be done. Those seven churches of Asia were not the only congregations in Asia Minor, but they were representative of the set fully of matters needing to be revealed. And to this day, they are magnificent presentations so that you and I can still identify what the Lord found lacking and what He highly commended. And so may you and I strive to accentuate what He found positive and attempt to remove what He found negative. When you close chapter number 3, you then have spent two chapters looking at these seven congregations and the particular letters that the Lord Jesus Christ directed to them. And suddenly then we open up chapter number 4. And some of these images that are to follow will show you and I at least representations of elements out of those chapters. Chapter 4 begins with an open door. I hope you and I will be thankful for open doors. They indicate access to something. They indicate that there is an opportunity for procession through and to enjoy what is it that rests beyond. John saw an open door. It was, of course, incredibly moving and symbolic of great teaching. And when you and I arrive at chapter 4, we will give that a great amount of consideration. But could we point out what a great message it was to Christians to know that they had access to heavenly realms and the proof and the positive and the power that connected to being right with God. For it is true that God has, of course, presented to those that are His own children the beautiful thoroughfare of passing through that into those realms that are heavenly in nature. But not only should we appreciate the matter of that open door, that chapter also points out to us a number of beings that John saw inhabiting the circumstances of that chapter. Again, as you look at that, you may notice that there's a host of beings, but would you please note those on the first seat, those that round the side in that amphitheater arrangement. Those are the 24 elders They occupy a very special place in the climb that we notice in that image. In the front of them, there are four living creatures there in the front. These are the living creatures, four of them. And you may notice their faces are distinct one from another. When you and I study that, it will take us directly back to the book of Daniel. And Ezekiel will have something to help us also appreciate the significance. You may begin to ask, what about all the other people? All of these up in here. Well, you may notice they're sitting around the great throne. And the one on the throne, of course, is the God of heaven, sitting in absolute royal splendor. One last thing about all of those therein gathered. You and I, of course, appreciate that they are in a position, desirous of offering appropriate service unto the God of heaven. And with that, our picture for that chapter even adds this. For we're readily told as that chapter ends that those 24 elders cast their crowns down and offer worship unto God at their appropriate moments when in fact that is the matter at hand. It is a scene in which we read this anthem in verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which is and which was and which is to come. It is a great scene of holiness, isn't it? Oh, to those early Christians, what a very motivational and powerful message it must have been. But with it, you and I begin to quickly see the following. Chapter number five brings before us another rather vivid image. We notice that in the right hand of the one on the throne is a book. You and I would call it a scroll, really. But it's sealed seven times, it's written on both front and back. That means the message is intense. It means the message is rather weighty. There's much to be said. Problem was, and John began to weep, because there was nobody body in heaven or earth or under the earth that was willing, or I should say, worthy to open the seals and to loose the contents. And suddenly, John begins to cry. It was clear that the book was important. It was clear that it would be desirous to know what was in it, but nobody was worthy. However, quickly, John was told, don't cry, don't weep, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and conquered and is worthy to loose the seals and open the book. But no sooner had John given appreciation to the lion of the tribe of Judah than in the next verse, he looks and sees a lamb. That which had been described as a lion is now set forward as this beautiful, powerful lamb, which you can also see here to the right of that particular slide. That chapter proceeds onward with a tremendous anthem of praise and adoration in light of the lamb. Verse number 12 will say it like this, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And in fact, that chapter closes with yet an extended exaltation of the Christ, what His blood made possible, and what He yet sets forward in light of the precious promises of eternity. It's at that point we journey into chapter number 6. In this chapter, the seals begin to be loosed. Remember, there are seven seals, and they ultimately will take us through chapter 11 before the seventh seal is finally loosed. But it begins in rather rapid succession to reveal the first four seals. And one by one, as they are loosed, John, what you see right in the book, the first seal is loosed and John sees a white horse. In fact, as you look left to right, you'll notice a white horse and in context with it is conquering character, victory and triumphant thrust. However, immediately following, you notice a red horse. This horse, as you appreciate it, symbolizes the character of a very different circumstance. Things look bleak and a bit darker. And then there's a black horse when the third seal is loosed. This one, a pair of balances is seen wherein there appears to be somewhat starvation and circumstances that are much less favorable. Finally, the fourth horse, a pale horse. And oddly enough, that which rides the pale horse is death. Isn't that interesting? to portray death riding a pale horse. And yet you and I shall learn much in light of the nation and consideration of those particular horses and the events that are described along with them. But as John saw them, we quickly come to the loosing of the fifth seal, which also occurs in that same chapter. John sees martyrs. Those who had lost their life for the cause of truth. Where are they? They're underneath the altar. You'll notice a rather large pictured altar and the souls of these who are put to death for the cause of Christ are portrayed beneath it. And they are speaking and asking a question, How long, how long shall we have to wait before the cause for which we died is vindicated? And they are told, Wait a little while longer. There are still others who must also suffer beneath the character of what you have suffered. You and I shall find much about the consideration of those souls. You may notice in light of that that we come to the closing part of chapter 6. In it, we notice that as the sixth seal is loosed, there's another rather dramatic presentation. You notice that mountains crumble and rocks fall and kings and various other princes, they try to hide in the dens and caves of the earth. Who are they hiding from? The Lamb. The Lamb. They're hiding from the one who, of course, had the opportunity and the power to bring about justice. In verse number 17, the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? You see, it is a reminder that this one of whom we've been reading, oh, it's true, he's a lamb, but he also has his capacity to bring about judgment and vengeance as well. That particular picture and portrait is one like that, And then we arrive at chapter number 7. And the chapter begins with a rather marvelous presentation, stirring, scintillating, as it sets before us, the sealing of the foreheads of the servants of God. That shall take us back to the book of Ezekiel as we study that in some few weeks. But we'll find in that consideration that those who have their foreheads sealed They are those who have a great blessing and connection to the God of heaven. And as you give some thought to that picture, you'll notice that the sealing is done by the very power of God Himself. Beyond all of that, we quickly read in that chapter about a very special number, 144,000. And they are divided into 12 tribes each of 12,000 individuals. And they are going to occupy a notable position. But it's not only these because in verses 9 and following, it is immediately added that there's an innumerable host that no man can number. And these are in a tremendously blessed position. They find themselves in a place in which the terrible matters that they've experienced prior are gone. But not only that, notice this description. Who are they? The text says in verse 14, They were those that had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That very Lamb of whom we had read not many chapters earlier, it's His blood that had cleansed and made them able to occupy that position. Aren't we being motivated in light of being washed in the blood of the Lamb? As chapter number 7 closes, the special arrangement in which they were helps us also notice that chapter 8 now begins like this. John, what you see right in the book, I see seven angels each with a trumpet. Now notice, we've, all, we've already seen seven seals. We're now coming face to face with seven trumpets. In chapter 1, we saw seven spirits. We shall see seven bowls in chapter 16. We have no doubt that the number 7 is going to occupy a very special place. A place that we will highlight many times in the book. But as far as these seven trumpets blown by the seven angels, we quickly discover that as one by one the trumpets are blown, in chapter number 8, four of them are blown. We notice a great deal of havoc, a great deal of challenge, and terror is unleashed. It is a very strong and intense scene as one by one those angels blow those trumpets. We shall address interestingly the connection that brings us to observe somewhat about them in history. But we'll add to that this. Chapter number 9 opens, there are three more woes to come because there's three more trumpets to sound. And in fact, there's a woe pronounced because the latter three will be worse than the previous four. The intensity ramps up. The experience, in fact, is added. And so you and I begin to see events portrayed like this. You notice as those trumpets are blown, there's a great deal of suffering that comes along with them and matters connected to earth as well. All of that maybe challenges us to make this application in that chapter. John sees a star known as Wormwood flying across the sky. Wormwood makes us think about that which is not only bitter, but it's very unsavory extremely unpleasant I wonder what that's going to be and the impact you see of experiencing something that goes with it as John sees all of that it only worsens when we look at what follows it you'll notice on the slide before you we begin to see a creature he will appear before us in chapter number 10 but as we see him would you notice where his feet are one of them is on the water one of them is on the land this particular creature should not be portrayed as evil. It turns out that in chapter 10, he will have a great message. Did you know what's in his hand? You may not be able to see it. It's a scroll, a book that has a message that God wants preached. You see, this message is going to be vital and essential, and John is told you yet have much preaching to be done. Despite the fact John was an aged man, there was still work for that aged man to do. One of the things about that chapter is that John is told to eat up the little book, to eat it. You and I will find an interesting set of lessons connected to that, but isn't it interesting, that which he was told to do, to take the little book and thoroughly eat it up? Ezekiel was told something like that as well. I'll simply say, as you and I transition to chapter 11, remember we get finally the seventh seal in that chapter. And in that chapter, we see somewhat about the features that will at least point us to the following. Two great witnesses John is, is, is blessed to see. One of them on the right, one of them on the left, and they provide out of their capacity that which is able to sustain. I wonder what the witnesses will be. You and I will find that their message was not only for that day and time, but continues in earnest even unto our day today. The witnesses here are portrayed as olive trees left and right with candlesticks presented with each one. The meaning, of course, will take us directly back to the Old Testament tabernacle. And with it, we will find some very encouraging words for us today and how thankful we shall be for them. As you and I close chapter number 11, we slide into chapter 12 and it becomes a bit dark again. We had at least moved in chapter 11 to a more positive state, at least in one sense. But in chapter 12, we are introduced to a great red dragon. You'll notice he's ferocious. Seven heads. You'll notice furthermore that he has at his disposal that which can bring about a great deal of havoc, not only to the realms of earth, but to some extent even beyond. You and I may wonder who is the dragon? Verses 7, 8, and 9 will tell us. He's the devil. We thus can immediately ask, what does that represent? What does the image convey? And thankfully, the Word of God tells us. He's the one that has deceived the whole world. But we learn in verse 11 of that chapter how to overcome Him, how to triumph over Him, and aren't we thankful for that kind of a victorious message? And chapter number 12 closes with us recognizing that His desire was... To kill the babe that the woman would deliver. We find that he was unsuccessful, but that he has not given up trying. Many things about that will, in fact, stoke our interest as well. But in chapter number 13, we learn more about the efforts of this one. And those efforts bring us to some of the observations you see here. You notice that there are those who fight against this dragon. You'll notice at the bottom of the dragon, those who wage war against him. Although many elements of victory he has known, he ultimately shall be defeated because the Lord has already made it so. In the closing of that chapter, we are immediately brought to the next. In addition to all of them, we now see yet another powerful creature. You'll notice again on that particular slide, this creature is one that has the great power of the goodness of God in heaven at his disposal and wages war on behalf of the saints against these things like we've seen in the dragon and the beast that arise in chapter 13. Speaking of chapter 13, we now have the opportunity to look rather carefully at this. Isn't it hideous? Isn't it atrocious? You begin to see a creature looking like this with all those horns. And this beast is able to wreak such havoc against the forces of good. Can you appreciate with me that truth is represented in a vivid and visual way in a book like this one? In which you basically see a play in essence acted out before you. And you interpret by virtue of that which takes place the message that's being taught. As this beast arises and as these things develop, you may notice that it's on the sea. Keep that in mind. The previous one had been on the land. This one's on the sea, and they both are terrible. I wonder what they represent. We shall see. And in that that study, we shall find that that message can be very helpful even to you as well as to me today. This particular image brings some of them together like this. You notice the various heads of some of these creatures, including the dragon. You also notice in the upper right, precious individuals who themselves are in such a conflicting battle in terms of the devil attempting his evil wares. And of course, having been sealed by God, they are desirous of faithfulness. Chapter number 13 will present to us a challenge. The mark of the beast is shown to us in that chapter. What is the mark? To what does it point and refer? Verse 18 will, in fact, describe it. And the contextual verses perhaps bring us now in context to arrive at chapter 16. We notice in chapter 14 the blessedness of following the Lamb. We saw in chapter 15 the great sea of glass, in which we notice there's a song being sung the song of Moses and the Lamb. Oh, what a beautiful song of two verses. As you and I appreciate the honor of those who are in position to sing that song, doesn't it set before us the joyful hope that you and I can be amongst the number? However, there are seven bowls in chapter 16. That chapter has been the occasion of much challenge in the mind of some. We see Armageddon in that chapter. May I quickly put our minds to rest many in our religious denominational world will say many things about this so-called Armageddon battle, but that chapter doesn't teach it like so often it's portrayed. You and I will find, in fact, a great deal of comfort and solace in light of that particular battle. But chapter 16 in these bowls might remind us that those bowls contain the wrath of God. And it is going to be poured out upon somebody upon some group, and oh, how delightful it would be to not be amongst that number. One by one, as those bowls are poured out, we are led to see some rather dramatic scenes. This picture puts together a number of particulars as it shows some of the aftermath of the pouring out of those bowls. The King James Version calls them vials. We find, among other things, that as that wrath is poured out, there's a tremendous smoke And it'll take us back to the tabernacle one more time. You see, as we noticed early in our study of the Revelation, it is a reminder that it is so often built upon particulars that were developed from the Old Testament presentation, be it from the early books of law or the later books of prophecy. Some of that will be very encouraging on the one hand, but also very rigorous on the other. You may notice one by one as we give some thought to them, you'll notice they're often extremely hurtful, extremely harmful, and extremely deadly, at least in, in, in certain cases. But with them, we might well then come to this. Chapter 17, John, what you see right in a book, I see a scarlet beast, and a woman is riding her, riding this beast. This woman is arrayed in rather unusual attire, if I might describe it that way, She is ornately adorned, but in so doing, in a way, encouraging the fornication. May I say that we'll have to ask, what does the woman represent? And what does the beast represent? And are there lessons in that that can be very encouraging as well as meaningful for us? We shall find those answers to be in the affirmative. As far as that beast, the very nature of the color, the number of the horns, The consideration of the significance of various parts will all be helpful as you and I strive to identify certain pieces and certain aspects of it. But in that same chapter, chapter number 17 of the Revelation, not only do we again see that beast and the woman that rides that beast, we are given introduction in verse 14 and following to one riding a white horse and one who is in fact wearing a particular vestment that identifies absolute and total victory. We need not wonder very long who the rider of the white horse is. It's the one, you see, who in that chapter is portrayed as King of kings and Lord of lords. We know exactly who that is. The Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed in dramatic victory over the particulars of enemies, highlighted not only in that chapter, but in some to follow. Isn't it sweet to know that though the world may portray the kind of thing we'd seen with the scarlet beast, those who cling to the Lord and those who grasp to Him can enjoy a kind of victory that only the rider of the white horse can bring. Chapter number 18 will continue that discussion by looking from a different direction, seeing in particular the nature of the fall of this great scarlet beast and the nature of the woman. Is it any wonder then in chapter 19, we arrive at a scene that you see before you. We see some who are cast into a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. A lake, you see, that is, again, a ready appreciation of the absolute demise and total destruction at some particular point of those that are cast into it. And if you look closely, there's no question who it is. We see it's those pictures we've seen earlier representative of those that were that dragon and the characteristics you see connected to the beasts. It might well be that we quickly notice as that chapter 19 ends, all of those, or at least so many of those, who had been in such a position of opposition are now gone. I wonder who's left. Well, chapter 20 is a very short chapter. But in that chapter, we are reminded that we suddenly see a bottomless pit. And we see one with a chain, and we see one who is bound in connection to that bottomless pit. Certainly a bottomless pit's an intriguing thing to consider. And yet the significance and the meaning, as intriguing as they are, will open to us an entire discussion in the twentieth chapter of that book. We finally in that chapter revisit the souls we had seen in chapter six. In that chapter, they were beneath the altar. They appeared to be defeated and completely subjugated. And now those same ones were sitting on thrones reigning with the Lord. And we appreciate what a tremendous reversal has taken place. That chapter closes in verses 11 to 15 with the great white throne judgment in which John sees the books were opened and all nations great and small were gathered before the moment of judgment. We notice that out of the books there was also the book of life. And all of those whose names are not in the book were cast into that same fiery light burning with fire and brimstone. Isn't it a noble consideration? A very thought-provoking scene to consider. This next picture is one in which it now brings us to that bottomless pit. And we see some features connected to it as they are portrayed for us there. And that chain and the things that we appreciate in it will turn out to be helpful as they motivate us in other ways in our service to the Master. Even in the midst of affliction or even in the midst of persecution or other matters. In fact, we now appreciate that that dragon we had seen earlier, he too is cast into that Lake that burns with fire and brimstone, and suddenly, as we close chapter 20, evil, iniquity, sin, and ungodliness are all gone. Two chapters left, chapter 21. And in that chapter, we begin to see these rather beautiful presentations. John sees things like this one more time, one sitting on the throne, the devil's now gone those false prophets and false teachers and those who arrayed themselves being unsealed by the word of God, they're gone. Who remains? The righteous. Those who were sealed. And you notice in a picture like this one that's portrayed before us, the one on the throne still remains. God has never abdicated. He's never delegated or given over that authority absolutely to others. And with that, We notice this as well. We notice that as the books are portrayed and various references are made to the events and lives and times of that particular scene in chapters 21 and 22, doesn't one by one, it brings us to images somewhat like this. You notice the awfulness of the lake. You notice the reality of those cast into it in light of the events we've seen. You also appreciate the heavenly city. Cubicle in at least the dimensions provided to us in Revelation 21. You notice that it's very large. Plenty enough size for all of those who will one day inhabit it. That's a representation of heaven. It points out to us the goal, the hope that you and I enjoy and we entertain. You may appreciate several other particulars are given about it in that same chapter. On this chapter, you may notice the splendid character of it. You may also appreciate the nature of its presentation by by way of gold. But even that's not all. You also notice in this particular scene, the walls of it are the finest of the gems that were available at the time. And they are each unique, but isn't it true that each entry was a pearl? And there was plenty enough entry for all who are, of course, ready to be stationed in that place. Pearls are, of course, very special gems, and we'll learn about them as we arrive at that description. But you'll notice that the foundation, as it was composed of those very special and very expensive layers, that did all remind us that inside was the most special thing, the tree of life we see one more time. It has never ceased to be fascinating that one of the grandest of things that began the Bible, the tree of life to which Adam and Eve had access in in the Garden of Eden, we see somewhat else of a tree in the light of the fact the cross is called a tree, the very cross on which the Savior died in 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. But then we encounter a tree one more time, the tree of life. What Adam and Eve lost due to their sin mankind can again have access to by faithfulness in that golden clime beyond all of that closes as we've rather panoramically looked at these pictures and it brings us to a moment of conclusion to summarize at least in an extremely brief way could we not say it like this blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city Revelation 22, verse 14. That's one of the golden beatitudes of the book. And notice, a blessed is pronounced upon those that do His commandments. Those, you see, that have provided an investment, their life and conviction to the Lord, they will be the ones with access to that tree of life. In Revelation 3, 21, the lesson text that was read tonight in our hearing. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord is knocking. Oh, how desperately He wants you and I to open the door of our heart and to allow Him in and to serve Him in faithfulness. You see, Revelation should be a book of encouragement, a genuine book of encouragement. It's our trust that as we've looked at some of these pictures rather briefly tonight, what we shall do beginning next Sunday evening is to go back and provide a bit more detail to some of the features. And as we slowly move through those chapters, will have occasion to revisit these slides, to rethink about some of the messages, and to be encouraged time and again, relative to the hope that you and I have for those that are the faithful. Tonight, if you're not faithful, though once a faithful Christian, won't you come back to your first love? Won't you realize that all those things that challenge us with what the Lord has in promise, we surely don't want that lake of fire. We surely don't want to be where those are. We want to be where the Lord is. Follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Revelation fourteen four. Tonight, if you're not following Him, though at one time you were, make some changes. Would you make repentance, confession, as the Bible demands? And we'd be honored to pray along with you tonight. If you've never become a Christian, though, wouldn't you like to begin journeying along that pathway that leads to that text in Revelation twenty-two fourteen? 14? They that do His commandments, you need to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, and what better night than tonight? If we could help you that way, Brother Joy has chosen this song of encouragement, and this is a convenient time, and we would encourage you, in fact, insist that you come, wouldn't you, right now? While well, together we stand and while we sing.